Welcome to the new podcast, History, Politics, and Beer, where we examine contemporary issues through the lens of history. We are solving the world's problems one podcast at a time. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. Welcome, everyone, to another podcast of History, Politics, and Beer. Uh, we have a good one for you today, so grab your graham crackers, juice boxes, and carpet squares and make a little semicircle around uh, because we're going to talk to Dr. Terry Madonna, Dr. G. Terry Madonna uh, at Franklin and Marshall College. Dr. Madonna is director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs, professor of public affairs, and director of the Franklin and Marshall College poll. Uh, he joined FNM in 2000. Before that, he put in 37 years at Millersville University. He has been polling since 1992, uh, which started out as the Keystone Poll, which is one of the oldest polls here in Pennsylvania. Um, I guess we should jump right in, Dr. Madonna, and ask you how this whole thing got started. I mean, you've been polling since 1992. Uh, really, you were polling before polling was cool. Yeah, actually, we uh, how it started was I was first in the history department and then in the government department at Millersville University and taught the American presidency and American political parties and soon discovered that if you really wanted to know what was going on with the with the folks, with the voters, you had to do polls. And at the time we started the Keystone poll at Millersville University, there was literally at that point only one statewide Pennsylvania poll called the Pennsylvania poll. That's why I had to use the term Keystone Keystone Poll, you know, another way to talk about our state, describe our state. And uh, I did it as an experiment with students. Students would do the interviewing. We trained them and uh, they did the calls in the alumni center at the university where there were, of course, scads of phones for obvious reasons that the alumni operation would try to reach its alums at, at the university for purposes of raising money for the for the universe the first poll i actually did was 1991 one poll that year in the uh, in a u.s senate race which which featured a, a guy named dick thornburg who mm-hmm. was had been governor and then went on to be uh attorney general of the state and i got the bug okay and decided afterwards that we would do a regular poll the following year, not just one. Uh, it would be one name poll, but it would be for a couple of media outlets, media clients. And we used students in the government classes at Millersville to do the interviews. They were trained. They performed quite well. And the poll got a reputation for accuracy and for reliability that uh, I think surprised a lot of people. And it had some durability, meaning it lasted. Right. We're now going to start our 27th consecutive year of polling. No other polling operation in the state has... Now, who uh, does the calls for you now? Well, now they're done by professional interviewers uh, that uh, work for the Center for Opinion Research. Okay. So the poll is actually done there for my center, for my operation. Uh, When we came over here to... Uh, FNM, the Center for Opinion Research, which was at Millersville, came along, and I gradually moved away from doing the actual polling operation itself. I'm responsible for it. Right. It's done for my center, but the folks at the Center for Opinion Research, and they do 30 or 40 other projects throughout the year for for school districts, for various entities in state government, for nonprofits. So it's a completely professionalized research operation that has that that does its work regularly not just six or seven polls for my center okay all right now uh, uh, I watched the um, it's on YouTube a lecture you gave at the Chautauqua Institute in the summer of 2016 and it was interesting to me because your polling at that time was was showing Hillary Hillary in mm-hmm. in PA, and we can talk about why that polling was off in a second. Sure, but sure. you must have had some kind of inkling because 
I noticed that during that talk, you were hedging your bets. I mean, the audience <laughs> wants a prediction, and you're you're there going, yeah. well, yeah, yeah, Hillary's ahead, but it was always but. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and that proved very prescient. I mean, yeah. you know, considering what happened. So, uh, why were you hedging your bets? What were, were well, you seeing something in the polling, or was it just your feel no, of politics? When you, do, I, I've done this for you know thirty five years or so, and. I've, you know, I read a lot about uh, elections. I follow them pretty carefully. I look at the national polls as well as other state polls. And my sense about that election was that both of the candidates were very unpopular. In other words, in what we call their favorables, how popular are they? Do you have a favorable or an unfavorable view? Both of them were in uncharted territory. The first election since scientific polling began that we had candidates who were less popular. We're, than, we're people yeah. didn't like them. Yeah, yeah, all right, you can put it that way. I'll, I'll be more restrained. Right. Yeah, <laughs> people God. didn't like them. People didn't like them. Yeah, I get that. So the point I want to make here is, and and she had a series of problems, and we just got the sense that the voters were ready for a change. I had that. The only question was, was Donald Trump acceptable? He was more unpopular than she was, but was he more acceptable than she was in in what looked like an election that, hmm, despite what the scientific polls were showing, might have some dimensions to it. And we found out, now this has not been scientifically proved, but I did 40 or 50 talks around this state and in other, other places around our country. I was convinced, and so have some others, even though there's no science to back it up, that there were a fair number of Trump voters who were not willing to say they'd vote for him because of his, you know, controversial personality and style. They were not ready to say that. Yeah, I had a quote here from uh, Sam Wang from Princeton. He says, I suggest that we retire the concept of undecided voters based on cognitive science. There's voters who are mentally committed, but they can't verbalize it. Yeah. They don't want to verbalize That's it. That's exactly right. So there's that hidden component. Well, I put it another way. I was giving a speech out in western Pennsylvania. And a guy came up to me after this speech, and I ended up saying a few things about, you know, what might happen in the election, presidential election 2016, and comes up to me and he says, you know, I live in a neighborhood with about 75 homes, and there were no signs for Donald Trump up until beginning of August, and one sign popped up. Three days later, I was coming home. And there were 10 Trump signs up. <laughs> it just took and one then person. I came home, you know, eight, 10 days later, whatever it was. I don't remember the exact sequence, but you get the point. Right. And there were 20 or 25 signs up. So there was what we call social acceptability involved. And I do think that was part of it. Uh, the other thing was, and this is important, the national polls, the national polls were basically pretty yeah, close yeah, to the outcome. Good. You know why? We forget this. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by 2.9 million votes. Yeah, almost 3 million votes. I mean, was, almost 3 million. Yeah. And the national polls on average were about 4%. 4, 4%. So they were within the margin of error. In the case of the state polls, which were more inaccurate, including ours, here was the problem was. Exit polls, the national exit poll and the state exit poll done here by the Center for Opinion Research showed that about 15 to 20 percent of the voters in our country made up their mind or changed their mind within the last 10 days. And about two thirds of them went for President Trump. Right. 60 percent. So went for Trump. So we at FNM were out of the field 10 days before the election. In okay. other words, we, we weren't interviewing. And then we have something that there's been no science connected to it, but it's commonly referred to as the Comey effect. What's that? The FBI director, James Comey, about eight or nine days before the actual vote in November of 2016, reopened the investigation into the Hillary email Clinton situation. And, and did so very publicly. Huh? Absolutely. Bottom line is simple here. There was... Enough that took place afterwards that 
gave the state polls a problem if you were out of the field right. and you couldn't pick any of this change up. The other problem is, in general, in polls, and without getting into all of the methodology, some polls have what we call low response rates. That's not very helpful. We have the cell phone situation. Right. People won't pick up landlines anymore. They think it's marketing. If they don't recognize the number, they don't pick it up. They won't pick up a phone. So without getting into all the technical details of it, polling is going through a major transformation. My sense ultimately is, and who I don't know if it's five years or 10 years away, but polling will be done online. Okay. Now, it's going to require significant statistical adjustments, weighting, and other factors. And we we did in 2016 and are doing now, uh, we are giving people an option of taking a poll online, taking the poll online, calling an 800 number into this facility here, or having our interviewers call them. And these are all on a randomized list of registered voters Okay, that that we would contact anyway to be interviewed. Now, when this election happened, I, I told my students that it was a, sort of a perfect storm, that the, the only way Trump could win was to run against Hillary. And the only way Hillary could win was to run against Trump. Well, you're, right. you're back to the fact that they're both basically yeah, they're not both very flawed, popular. Flawed candidates. Yeah, so yeah. my question is, are we giving, do you think we get, we're giving too much credit to Donald Trump for beating a, such an unpopular candidate, uh, Hillary Clinton? Well, who knows? I and mean, losing by three million votes in the popular Yeah, that's anyway. true. But remember, it's not the first time it happened. It's the third time it happened. Right. And, you know, Hillary Clinton today, even today, is complaining that she lost the election, even though she won a popular vote. Well, unfortunately or for her, there's something called the Electoral right. College, and that's the way we elect presidents. If you don't believe me, ask, ask uh, President Gore. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the last uh, candidate who won the popular, uh, other than Hillary, you know, won the popular President vote. President Tilden. I think. Yeah, President yeah, Tilden. Yeah, yeah, I didn't want to go back yeah. that far. But so, so the point about this is this. Donald Trump developed a strategy. And it was the strategy that won the presidency for him. It was called the Rust Belt strategy. Donald Trump's campaign decided that they could win states with a large proportion of white working class voters, voters without college educations, whose ancestors in many cases worked in the mines and the mills in coal and iron and steel and the lead into, and paint and glass and all those things that made us a central part of the industrial era in the world. And that all had gone into, into decline. So the Trump campaign developed the Rust Belt strategy to go after Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, and Wisconsin. Four states, by the way, that typically in modern times right. hadn't exactly voted for Republican candidates for the presidency of the United States. I think Wisconsin hasn't voted Republican since Reagan. Reagan, yeah. yeah and in our Reagan. state... The George last Reagan. was was no was George uh, Herbert Walker H. Bush. Yeah, so, Pennsylvania was yeah, like that, yeah. right? The Democrats had won six straight presidential elections in our state. Six state, six straight. They lost the seventh, obviously, when Donald Trump carried Pennsylvania by forty four thousand votes. So let me make this point. So the Rust Belt strategy was aimed at trade, unfair trade deals, right. Trans Pacific Partnership, and NAFTA in particular. It was aimed at getting rid of those trade deals and bringing back coal and steel. Now, the question isn't whether that was possible or not. It was that Donald Trump, folk, Donald Trump could find Maness in Pennsylvania. Hillary Clinton could not. Her campaign was focused on urban, right, on urban America for the most part. His campaign was focused on small town and rural America. And hence, he won those four states, and you throw in Florida, and he got himself the 304 electoral votes. Remember, this was a lot closer than George W. Bush's both elections in which right. he won the electoral college with under 300 votes. So, uh, well, and, and you mentioned uh, the the Rust Belt, and I'm, I'm from Indiana, I, I can tell you. You know, if you go through the small towns there, there when I went to high school, there was a lively downtown, and yeah. there were and and, and not only that, well, there go were to Johnstown, go to Manesson, go to Erie, 
I mean, I never thought. Go to Reddit. Yeah, go to Reddit. <laughs> I never thought in my lifetime that the Republicans would elect a state senator from Erie and Johnstown, Pennsylvania. Right. And by the way, Trump won 23 of 67 Pennsylvania counties by 70% of the vote. So it's not that Hillary didn't perform well in urban Pennsylvania. She came out of Philly much better than, than uh, Barack Obama did in 2012, for example. She carried all four Philadelphia suburbs, Bucks, Chester, Montgomery, and Delaware, huge pluralities. If you just looked at those numbers, you said, well, she carried the state. Uh Uh-uh. Because Trump's campaign were were able to win small town and rural Pennsylvania up in the Northeast, out in the Southwest. You could go through counties out in the Southwest. Washington, Westmoreland, Green, Cambria, Fayette. Aren't you impressed that I can name all (laughs) of them? All of them have Democratic registration edges, and he won them handily. Because that's the place where these working class voters who believe that their old party, and by the way, every one of those counties has a Democratic voter registration edge over the Republicans. The Democrats walked away from them. Nobody cared about them. So this guy comes along with a populist anti-establishment message right. aimed well, at trade. And Well, it would, it would seem like the, the recent election in, in uh, PA 18 where um, uh, there was the district uh, out there where Connor Lamb, the, the, the Democrat, 18th got a, con- Pennsylvania 18th Congressional District. Yeah, and, 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 and that, that was a district that he won by 20 points. 20. But they got a guy who was an ex, you know, ex-Marine. He could go into the union halls. He could go to the VFWs. Absolutely. And the guy they got to speak, the only national guy he got to speak, was Joe Biden, who yeah. could also go to the same places and be welcome. So it's exactly it, that right. would just yeah. is, is proving. And by your the way, Con- Connor Lamb made sure that he let the voters of the of the 18th. Now it's all been changed because of the new Supreme right. Court map. That in the in the old 18th, that he wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, for I, I, I remember that. Can can I give you uh, another? Uh, theory that some people have, and let you see what what you think about it. There's this writer uh, in a magazine. I read the Atlantic once in a while. Mm-hmm. There's this guy named Tanashi Coates. You might mm-hmm. be familiar, and he had an article called "The First White President." And his theory is that uh, what, what was the driving impetus to Trump's victory is a reaction against Donald Trump and basically racism. And, and he mentions. The centrality of birtherism, and that's how kind of Trump distinguished himself from Man. some of the. Uh, and and he quotes this thing from Edison Research. He said, uh, "They said Trump won whites making less making than fifty thousand dollars a year by no twenty college. points. No whites making fifty to a uh, hundred thousand dollars a year, he won by twenty eight points. Right. Uh, and whites making more than a hundred thousand a year." He won by 14 points. So what he's trying to say is these people, uh, you know, uh, weren't necessarily economically distressed or threatened, but they were voting on the basis of race. Now, I have my own thoughts about that. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, I think the primary motive behind these people were exactly the opposite. I mean, would I rule out in some cases that that there was a racial component reaction? No, I won't. But the primary driving force was the fact that this was the first candidate who actually went into these towns, who had a message for them, you know, uh, a a blue-collar approach. What in, In the polls that have been done, these are the voters who felt neglected, left behind uh, communities that were that were going south in many ways, uh, looking for jobs, looking for a future for their kids, uh, many of them working in minimum wage uh, situations. I think the primary driving force was much more in that direction than it was in race. I'm always happy when people smarter than me agree with me because I, <laughs> I, I the more informed, agree with me. Because the biggest argument I, I can think of against uh, Coates' argument is is that the, these very same states won by Barack Obama twice. Yeah. And if racism was the driving force, yeah. 
Why did well, and, and and it wasn't close. I mean, Obama, to, if you look at it, it wasn't really close in these states either. It was ten points in our state in two thousand and eight, and five points in two thousand and twelve. And similarly, Obama declined in the other so-called Rust Belt states in two thousand and twelve. But if that's the case, then how do you explain a decade-long movement of the white working class away from the Democratic Party? The correlation is that the Democratic Party became an urban-based party. And to some extent, the argument can be made that once the Democrats became more urban-based and focused on urban problems, which did include minorities, which did include immigrants, uh, some of them illegal, you begin to get the sense that these people felt neglected. Uh, I think more primarily. Now, are you going to rule out a racial component to the vote completely and absolutely? No, but that's not the driving force. It's something very hard to measure as well. I mean, I don't, how many people are actually going to poll going to tell you They're that gonna, yeah. I voted for somebody? I have a question about that night of the election. I remember sitting there watching it. Um, and I, my moment when I thought something was amiss was when Vir- they couldn't pick Virginia. Pick Virginia. Virginia was like, Virginia should be a slam dunk for yeah. Hillary. And it's not. It's uncalled. Right. Where? When- that's the feel. Remember, that's a lot of the people who it, oriented in D.C. Right. Live in, the, live in the, how do I put it? The Washington suburbs that are located in Virginia, does right. that make it like yeah. the Philadelphia suburbs that are located in Bucks, and Montgomery and Delaware counties? When did you pick up that night that this was going to be different than what a lot of people were predicting? Uh, when I first got the sense about the Rust Belt states and, and, and what they were likely to do, and particularly the closeness of the Pennsylvania vote, which okay. has been... You know, and the the more when I looked at it, the more I thought, well, if Pennsylvania is going to be won by Trump, hmm, that means some other states where the Democrats have done less well are likely to swing as well. And Florida was a pivotal state, remember, with its large number of electoral votes. Well, I think another factor that that would support your thesis as well is, you know, Obama did a lot of work in helping get the automobile industry uh, out of Hawk. And, and, and that's mm-hmm. obviously in Michigan and Ohio, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. uh, that's a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so th- that would support, you know, your basic argument that if you show you care about these people, they'll reward you with with your vote. And Hillary well, didn't have that kind of Hillary connection. didn't have a strategy to deal with them and didn't campaign among them. I mean, and. Afterwards, there were there a lot of assessments that reached the same conclusion that uh, that she just didn't pay attention to those voters. Did she voters. even go to Wisconsin? I'm not even sure she. No, she did not go to Wisconsin. She became she, the very thing that the Republicans were saying that you exactly, you're forgotten. exactly. She, you um, do you see this as uh, this back to your uh, talk? I was watching online. Um, is this you? You were talking about how in the world does. The Republicans nominate Trump and the Democrats almost nominate a Democratic Socialist, mm-hmm. both not even part of your party, really. Is this a realignment election? Well, I, I do. Th- no, well, there was a re- the realignment was going on for some time. That's the point I like to make. I okay. mean, it's a decade old, at least, where working class Democrats are now voting Republican more and more. And if you go into the Philadelphia places like the Philadelphia suburbs, but you could go all over the country to other big cities and their suburbs, what's going on is they used to be Republican strongholds. And now the Democrats are making big inroads there because those voters are more moderate. They're culturally liberal. Okay. So they're for abortion. They're for gay and transgender rights. Their gun control has become a huge issue. For obvious reasons, that's another environment, the the environment. So the Democrats have latched on to an agenda that's more urban and I'll say in a sense suburban and are doing better with those voters than the Republicans. And so that realignment is not new, that this election, in a sense, confirmed, confirmed the trend that had been underway for at least a decade. But, and the Electoral College is, is a, in the year Chautauqua talk, you mentioned it, it used to really favor the Republicans, and then it started to favor the Democrats. 
I don't know where it is. You know, if I if I look <laughs> at George Bush's W. Bush's election, where he lost the popular vote but won the electoral college, and Trump too. I mean, you can make the argument that in the 21st century, the Republicans wouldn't have had anybody uh, uh, elected president if it wasn't for the electoral college, because the only time they uh, they well, win the, the popular two, two. vote is is when. Bush runs for re-election, and there is usually a built-in advantage. Yeah, 18, eight, 18 years, in the 18-year period, two elections were won by Republicans with the Electoral College well, and not the popular vote. That's right, right, point. and, that's, and, and yeah. that's the only way they, yeah. they you have. Yeah. Actually, George Bush, the only winner, and he's running for re-election. So uh, where does it, is the Electoral College... Helping the Democrats, uh, the Republicans, Republicans now? Oh, I think they're certain. I mean, look, the Electoral College in some respects is not neutral because you can have millions and millions of, of, of an advantage in one in two states like California and New York, right. which essentially delivered the two point nine million voter edge for 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 Hillary Clinton. I mean, there isn't any doubt that the Electoral College, you know, can be skewed in favor of one party or another, and that's the way it's been historically. I mean, that's not a new factor. Uh, and it does protect, in a sense, one party, one party states. But uh, the real question is, and I'm not a fan of the Electoral College, I think that it's, you know, it, it had its moment and its reason for uh, creation in the U.S. Constitution in 1787. I don't think those reasons... Uh, continue, but it's not going to change because you have to amend the Constitution, right. and you all know how difficult, everybody knows how difficult that is. It's two-thirds of Congress, both houses, and three-quarters of the state. Of, of the states, and, and, the, the and remember, smaller, it's only been done fewer than 30 times in our whole history. And the smaller states, a lot of people don't realize this, they, they, they get, actually, their voters get overrepresented yes. because the, the Electoral College is based on the number of people you have in Congress, and the smaller states yeah. all have two senators, well, so, the, the bigger, and they're never the bigger, going... To, the bigger advantage is every state has two senators regardless of right, size right, that right. that's the advantage that they right. get and, and they're never going to vote to get rid yeah, of that advantage yeah, so yeah. you're never going to get three quarters exactly of the right. state yeah, the so. territory of montana gets two right and uh, california gets two that's kind of ridiculous yeah. i mean wyoming wyoming has six hundred thousand people you mean in it? some states with more deer than people right exactly it, explain this one to me since we're the magic eight ball and you hear dr madonna kind of like exp explain the trump obama voter the people who voted for Obama in 2008, 2012, and then voted for Trump in 2016. Well, Obama, Obama was, was losing the vote of the working class. This, As I said, this began you, – you, I began to see this a decade or so ago. Okay. This isn't a new phenomenon. Barack Obama, for example, in our state, which I, you can use, I, we can use because the folks who are going to listen to the podcast are primarily Pennsylvanians, I would think. Right. So imagine this. He went, he wins Erie Center, Erie County, Center County, and Allegheny County. He doesn't win the working class counties that have Democratic registration. Now he did win east of the, I'm talking about west of the Susquehanna. Right. He only won three counties. He did win Luzerne, which is a working class county. Every time I think of Lackawanna and Luzerne, what comes to mind based on its Economic history is anthracite coal. Mm -hmm. Donald Trump won Luzerne County. I'll be, I don't have the data in front of me. I think it's something like 3,000 votes. I mean, that's pretty ahistoric. So basically what was going on, the evolution of these working class voters away from the Democrats began before Obama. Obama wins this big vote in 2008, largely because the Great Recession had been right. underway. And you know what happens in presidential elections or any elections when you have big economic problems. The president and his party gets the blame whether they caused it or not. And if things are going good, they get the credit for it, whether they've had anything to do with it or not. So overall, overall, and Obama won convincingly in the Electoral College both times, both times. And in the first election, he won the popular vote overwhelmingly. So it's not a question that you know, it, that that first election was close. The second one was another matter because 
what really hurt the president, President Obama, was in the in you know you still had the recession underway in 2012. You had the unpopular popularity of the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as yeah. Obamacare, and the recession still lingered on. Well, I, I want to take it in a little bit of a new direction. We, we, we were hammering the election. I'm look. The economy's doing well. Unemployment's low. And Trump's approval rating is better now. It's is 40, better. about 44% on the real clear politics average. It's up. It's at the highest point it was. It has been since he was elected. You got that? The highest point since he was elected. It's now a point or two below and in some cases equal to at this point in their presidencies to Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, and Barack Obama. You hear what I just said? And yeah, we all know... In, but we, early in Carter and early in Reagan and even early in Obama, we had a bad economy. Yeah, that's true. But the difference here is Trump's style and personality are such that... Excuse the expression. It trumps <laughs> the good news out of the economy. We also have this incredible polarization and partisanship that's grown intensely over the last decade or so, and it's reached its culmination. And so it's hard to move voters, you right. follow me, particularly on the Democratic side and on the Republican side, because of the polarization. The point I'm trying to make here is if Trump if Trump had a different style and personality, and there are many nuances to that, which we can talk about, I think his numbers would be 50 or above. Yeah, that's something. Like, but, he, but he's pretty much right where... Where President Obama, just to go back one president was in in what in two thousand and ten in a midterm election, his party lost sixty three seats in the house isn't isn't it kind of sad in in a way that these presidents have these kind of, you know, it does speak to polarization. You just had an election, I think part of the purposes historically of election is legitimacy when okay we're we're with this guy or this you know woman you know we're going to be behind well let's see what happens and then you know mm-hmm. and it doesn't seem and there used to be the so-called honeymoon you know no honeymoon. let's let him pass and and now they get in there's no honeymoon no. it's just partisanship right away right. and it seems hard to address our problems partly because we can't even agree on what the, the problems are. Yeah, but here's, here's, here's another factor that we have not had recently. There are a large number of voters, Democrats, who refuse to accept the legitimacy of the Trump election. Now you said it a few times. Are you, that's not... I'm that's, talking that's, about the fact that they think that oh, for okay. one reason or another, the election was fraudulent. Okay. That he was, he didn't win the popular vote. That whatever was going on in the election worked against Hillary. Okay. And that he was illegitimately elected. But, but, and it? you hear that and yeah. you get the sense of that. And that goes to your, your question. Exactly your question. Plus, his, he was, he was so unpopular. Now, the polling numbers on their popularity, Trump was up to 30% at one point. On election day, I think it, he was 18 or 19 percent more unpopular than popular. Hillary was 18, 19 points more unpopular on election day. I she would, had, she had, I would laugh, but it's sad. She, she dropped down into single digits, but they were both unpopular. So some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, we, we were going to elect someone who was very unpopular with the voters and particularly with the voters of the other party. You add that to the legitimacy question. You add that to the polarization, and you got the perfect storm. So, so they're, they're going to be digging out of a hole. Whoever it was, they're going to be digging out of a, a hole to get to uh, uh, more than fifty percent. Correct. Uh, and, you know that legitimacy question is one that concerns me because you know, we've been lucky enough to have these peaceful transitions of power, and if you don't know about world history, uh, you don't know how unusual that can be, especially for over two hundred year. Uh, period. I guess you could, might argue that Lincoln eventually. Turned yeah, out we didn't not exactly be, have uh, one in 1860, did we? <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, with that one big exception, we, yeah. we we've been yeah. okay. But you know, with with this idea of birtherism, 
And the idea, I mean, the whole idea behind that is Obama's not really an American. He wasn't really born here. Oh, that was horrible. And, and therefore, but therefore, according to the Constitution, he can't really be president president because he's not a natural born citizen. Never mind his mom was from Kansas. We kind of threw that out of there. But that's, I think that was an attack at the legitimacy, too. Oh, there's no doubt about it. And that does concern me because if, if people go around and say, well, he, He's not the real leader, or and if someday it might be, she's not the real leader. Then you can justify a lot of things, and also you, you don't want to just, work if they're not the real leader. Why would you yeah. work with them? You to can get justify done? many of the activities that the opponents of Trump carry out almost daily now. Right. I mean, I mean, something we talked about just uh, off. Uh, I almost said off camera, off off Mike. audio, yeah. off audio. Before is look at the situation that exists with the fact that Trump's uh, advisors and staffers can't go out, cabinet right. secretary can't go out and have a dinner without now, quote, being harassed. And that's the term that was used by a congresswoman who said, go and harass these people. Wow. And, awesome. you know, that is something I think the majority of Americans find unacceptable. In fact, Democratic leaders you know, from Chuck Senator Schumer to uh, uh, Minority Leader Pelosi in the House have criticized. Do you see it ending? Is there somebody out there on the political um, horizon that it's not going to end anytime soon? Now we've been through rough patches before. We had a brutal period during the 1930s and the uh, uh, and the Roosevelt New Deal, both the first and the second New Deal, and a lot of that was unpopular. And we had considerable polarization. And we seem to forget the 1960s and the demonstrations and the violence that attended to the civil rights demonstrators when civil rights uh, marchers were, were, in some cases, brutalized, brutalized. And then look at the, at the Vietnam War. We've been through rough patches before. I'm not pessimistic about the future. The one concern that I do have is... The 80 million millennials that are coming along. I wanted to get to that. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, 80 million of them, they're now the largest age cohort. My deep concern about millennials is the lack of knowledge and information about our history, about our government. And I know you, you, you folks are heavily involved in high school education. Just the lack from, from, you know, I'll start at kindergarten, though I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, up through 12th, up through 12th grade, and then even into college, where it's just, it's not, you know, history and government are not required. They used to be required on many. These young people just don't have any sense of our history and our government. And I think that doesn't play well for the future. But. Well, you hit on two things <laughs> that I uh, am, am interested in. One, you mentioned the 60s and how we're divided. I'm old enough to, to certainly re- remember that. And uh, actually, uh, I grew up uh, on uh, military bases in the mm-hmm. South. So mm-hmm. I, I remember being on a military base, which was completely integrated because Truman had integrated of course. Sur- yeah, the and service, going yeah. off and where black people could go to restaurants and movie theaters. And I didn't understand it as a kid. So, I mean, we really sure. were divided. Sure. Uh, I read a great Deeply. book about uh, uh, that that period. It's uh, Rick Perlstein. He wrote a book called Nixon Land. Mm-hmm. And I, I just liked it for, for it. But, you know, he traces a lot of this division back to that period that, that you mentioned, that Nixon certain. is is a There's guy. A and and I know he started, he talks about Nixon at Whittier College, and he wants to be the uh, student body president, president right. but the people that are kind of cooler and have a little more money and are better dressed, they're the ones who control. And he's, he's, and they call themselves the Franklins. Franklin. He starts a group called the Orthogonians, to, which are kind of the people that are left out. Right. And right. he nurses sort of the, these, the, the, this envy, uh, the fact that these people are looking down on you and sure. you should and he becomes student body president, president. it's a, a mess a lesson that uh you know he learns uh well then and uh, you know it seems like a lot of this stuff parallels trump yeah. he had a southern strategy nixon and, right. and nixon I, you know you might want to explain 
yeah. mad because I don't know. And yeah. then the attacks on the press, which Trump does. I mean, uh, Nixon sent out Spiro oh, it's, Agnew it's, it's about the mattering. Yeah. It's, it's, so, it's, it's not, it's not as no. Look, yeah. we go through these periods in American history. And eventually we evolve out of them. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't carry the residue of it with us into contemporary times, the degree, but we traditionally then move on to another set of problems. And, you know, we've been polarized before. It's not that that's not particularly new. Uh, the fact is that, that each generation has to deal with a certain set of problems and conditions that A, it inherits, but B, faces a new set of enduring, sometimes enduring challenges. And it's just hard to know. I mean, the sixties were a huge, a deeply divisive period in our history. There's no doubt about it. But in many respects, I think when we came out of it, we were better off in terms of what we did with civil rights. There could be no doubt about that. The Vietnam War, and by the way, I was a protester. I was not a fan of the Vietnam War. But here's what disappointed me. I took personally the position that I would oppose LBJ's policies towards the war and the expansion of the war. But when the veterans returned home, I took the position that we should support the troops because they were following the orders of the commander in chief and spitting on veterans and cursing them out. I would never go to any rally or participate in any of that. I thought that was dreadful. And I feel the same way about folks who return home from our more contemporary, you know, uh, situations. They're only doing the job that the commander in chief and in some cases Congress orders them to do. So we have to be very careful about that. I, I hear echoes of my father. Uh, he was a major in uh, paratroopers, and I yeah. He says it's not the Got military's it. fault, and he said it was the god darn politicians. He, no, you're exactly right. I mean, a, he, he was exactly it, right. right. They were doing right. what they were told. Yeah. And that, the talk you were giving, you mentioned earlier, the millennials that you made it. They're a whole different group. That's hard. What did you mean by that? When you poll millennials, how are they seeing the political landscape yeah. different? Then, well, first of all, they don't have a keen interest per se in political parties. There's a surprise, now they have right? to register, right? You know, they will. You no know, more of them are independent than Democratic or Republican, but more of them by about 15 percentage points are more likely to be Democrats than Republicans. They're culturally very liberal, they're not enamored with what I call institutions as such, whether we're talking about government or business. Uh, and they, you know, have some other patterns that aren't related to what we're talking about now. Now, in terms of their vote, in terms of their vote, for example, in the last presidential election, they gave of, of the age cohorts, whether we're talking about the silent generation, the post-silent generation. Now we're really up there. Uh, you know, uh, the fact is that they gave the highest percentage of their vote to Hillary Clinton of any of the age cohorts. Okay. Again, whether it's, it's, it's Gen X or the baby boomers. Secondly, future in the, in the future, uh, and their turnout, by the way, was the lowest of any age cohort. Now that's not uncommon depending on how you want to use them, 18 to 29 year olds or 18 to 34 year olds, depending on who's doing the study, they'll, do a, use a different classification of ages. The fact is that about 49% of them turned out to vote in 2016. That was the lowest. What was that again? 49%. 49%. All right, so less yeah. than half. Yeah. About half. Yeah, about, I always, in, when I'm talking, say about half. And again, for the future, however, I think the Republicans are going to have a problem with this 80 million people unless they go through some change, even though they're not wild about party structure and party institutions. The, their positioning right now much more favors the Democrats and the Republicans. However, there was just been some other studies that show that could change. So where the millennials are concerned, all bets are off. Okay. We're just going to have to wait and see as they evolve. But within 10 years, they're going to have a major impact because they will, the 34-year-olds will be 44, you get it. And as they track through right. uh, through the various age groups, uh, they're going to have a huge impact. You, in the Chautauqua talk you gave, 
uh, at the time, um, the generic polling that you were citing, I think, was giving the Democrats 10 to 15 percent. They had, well, 12, 13 points was probably as high as they got, but that was at the end of last year. Now, think about this. It was 12 to 13 points. At the time, there were serious analysts thinking that the Democrats could pick up 30 to 40 seats in the House. At the time, they needed 23 to take over the House. They now need 24. 23 seats. As you and I speak right now, the generic ballot question is only six points in favor of the Democrats. But here's what we're finding. Democrats are more likely to vote in in the midterm than Republicans. Number two. Democrats are, isn't that fact unusual? Don't don't the Republicans yeah, usually normally have the edge in because the it's an older white electorate. You got it, an older white electorate in midterms. So we have we have that that factor going on. We also have some other conditions that I think are likely to play out. Take a look at the number of candidates running throughout the country. And in our state, far more Democrats than Republicans for state legislative seats and for Congress. Seems like a lot of women well, are entering know, I'm, the... I'm going there. Okay. If you take the primaries held to date, almost 400, 400 of the candidates running for Congress are females. And we have primaries coming up. We'll probably add another 50, maybe 60. And the Democrats, the Democrats... Running for the Democratic nomination to the United States House of Representatives. 49% of the Democratic primary winners in all the primaries that have been held are females. 49%. Right now, the House of Representatives in Washington has has 19.4% of the 435 members are females. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That, now, I'm excluding difference. Democratic incumbents when I right. talk about the primary elections and women. In Pennsylvania, we had 84 people run for the 18 congressional seats, 84. 23 of them were women. Eight women won. In one House seat, the Pennsylvania 6th congressional race, two women are running against each other. But here's this is important overwhelmingly the number of women who are running and are getting nominated are Democrats. Overwhelmingly. In our state, eight women won, seven Democrats and one Republican. And most of the Democrats running are, quote, progressives, end quote. Okay. They don't call themselves liberal because that's a pejorative. Right, right. So we use progressive. And you know why many of them are running? Anti-Trump. Right. Yeah, it seems to be a huge a wave of anti-Trump with women. They've taken offense to what he has the, said. The obvious, so, yeah, you yeah. Know, the, you can. And in some cases, the opposite is true. In re- Republican primaries that began at the beginning of the year, right through our own, on May 15 in Pennsylvania, in Republican primaries, the question is: Are you Trump enough? <laughs> right. And they're battling over whether you're supporting the president or not. The, the, I'm, I'm going to say something that probably may not be as accurate as I would like it to be. The Republican Party is now a wholly owned subsidiary of Donald Trump. Oh, no, I agree. Right. A, yeah. right. Because of the primaries, you can't get the, it's the, the a Trump party. He is and, complete. Well, listen to and, this. And, In a Gallup poll just done somewhat recently, Trump was getting 92 percent of the Republican electorate votes. In other polls, it was 86, 87 percent. At this point of his presidency, that's higher than Barack Obama was getting among Democrats. That's amazing. Well, we're we're getting down about 50 minutes here, Jeff. I know you had a. Do you have any closing questions you want to fire off here to Dr. Madonna before we let him get to lunch and whatever else he needs to take care of? Well, I I guess I do have. You know, as we talked a little bit before we started the interview and. It's, you know, this is politics and, and government and, and, and America has been something you've just been passionate about. And I can detect that you're concerned and possibly even sad about the direction of politics. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned that the education, the civics education, is not um, 
what it should be, and I'll certainly agree with that. Um, how do you do? You have optimism to the future, and I guess it's a two-part question. Are you optimistic about the future uh, of our government in the sense that we can get together enough to solve yeah, these very real yeah. problems? And would education play any role? In yeah. That? Well, first of all, I am somewhat pessimistic about where we are right now. But as a, someone who taught American history and presidential history for a good bit of his career, I've seen the ups and the downs, the good, the good and the bad throughout our entire history. And we somehow find a way to, to work it, work, it, work it out. Now, we had some other things in the past that having folks coming along, coming up through the ranks, you know, who had a sense about our history and our culture. And I think that's largely being neglected, if not indeed lost. And that concerns me deeply because of the future of our country and what it means. We have people now who believe that nations shouldn't even exist, that we ought to have open borders and that right. there really isn't a country, quote, per se, and that nations shouldn't have, you know, the the uh, fundamentals that nations have historically had, that that leads to all sorts of problems. I'm not unnecessarily pessimistic, but we're undergoing a major transformation that we obviously have to deal with. All right. Hey. Well, I got, wait, I got one last oh, question. All right, I'm go sure ahead, Jeff. our listeners want to know. It's always G. Terry Madonna. George. Okay. There you go. <laughs> well, my uh, middle name is Terry, and I was I'm uh, reared as a Catholic. Went to parochial schools, and Terry is not a Christian name. Terrence is. There's okay. a Saint Terrence. So my dad's name was George. So it's G. Terry. So in schools, I'm George, but okay. all my friends call me Terry. So right. I answer to either one. Dr. Madonna, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Um, if you want to get in contact with us, you can hit us on Twitter, on Facebook. Uh, check us out on, you can hit us on email, uh, historypoliticsandbeer at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time, boys and girls. Mm-hmm.